Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 79, Conqueror and Statesman. Last week, we left Llewellyn returning sadly to Wales, crushed by Edward's armies, and basically reduced back to his heartlands in Gwyneth. Would he knuckle under and play the long game again, or plan for revolt? It's quite probable, in fact, that Llewellyn tried to knuckle under and sit it out. His letters to Edward remained submissive. He kept up his repayments. And this time, it wasn't him that started the fight. However, things did become pretty intolerable for Llewellyn and many of the Welsh. English domination was back. And suddenly, Llewellyn's impositions didn't seem so bad at all. English officialdom, especially in the form of Reginald de Grey as the Justicia of Chester, was brutal. Welsh lords, who had worked loyally with Edward, nonetheless found their castles removed. Daffid was an embittered man in particular. He'd expected to get Gwyneth, not two poxy cantrefs. Particularly painfully, time and again the Welsh were denied their own laws and forced to face judgment under English laws, as all those English prejudices and feeling of superiority came into play. Daffid was outraged. Let the law of Wales be unchanged like the laws of other nations, he told Edward. New towns were established in the shadows of the castles occupied by royal garrisons. These were peopled by purely English settlers. Although the Welsh were allowed to come into the towns by day, they weren't allowed to trade in them. Effectively, the Welsh were excluded from parts of their own country and specifically from commercial privileges. The result was that within five years the Welsh were more united 
than they had ever been under Llewellyn. And in the background, Dafydd and the other Welsh leaders planned their response, but this time without including Llewellyn. And then, on the night of the 21st of March, 1282, the plan was implemented. Dafydd and a group of raiders descended on Harwarden Castle, captured and burnt it, and hauled off Edward's old friend, Roger Clifford. The following day, Flint and Rudland were attacked, and the day after that, Aberystwyth was taken. The English settlers in the towns felt the full brunt of Welsh fury, with their houses looted and burnt. And in the south there were other attacks, including on the English border town of Oswestry. Now, this gave Llewellyn a real problem. Did he join his brother and their patriotic revolt, despite its frankly feeble chances of success? Or did he do as Griffith ap Gwynwynwyn was to do, stay loyal to Edward and try to survive? He agonised. He debated. And then, on the 19th of June, his wife Eleanor gave birth. But the child was a girl, not a boy that would carry on his dynasty, and Eleanor herself died in childbirth. So now Llewellyn, 59 years old, really had nothing to lose, and he threw his hand in with the revolt. Edward's strategy this time was very similar, a three-pronged attack from south-east, south-west and north. But his objectives were probably very different from last time. In the words of the song, this time it would be forever. From Edward's viewpoint, this was treachery of the worst order, particularly from Daffid, who as far as he was concerned, he'd treated with great generosity. From this point on, there was no spirit of compromise, no more Mr Nice Guy. This was a war of conquest. But he faced a much more united opposition this time, and in the beginning there were some unnerving setbacks. Gilbert de Clare fell into an ambush leading the southern attack. A young man called William de Valence was killed, the son of William de Valence of Lusignan fame. And meanwhile William Senior was repulsed on his advance to Aberystwyth. But for the Welsh, these were passing hopes. In the north, Edward was absolutely relentless. With 800 cavalry and 9,000 foot, he had resources the Welsh just couldn't hope to match. And the weeks passed with the English advancing ever westwards. Hope, Harwarden, Rudland. Rather remarkably, in September, Edward's carpenters had built a bridge of boats across to Anglesey. And at this point, John Peckham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, enters the scene trying to get negotiation going. He faced an uphill task, and it's clearer than ever that Edward was bent on conquest. The best he would offer Llewellyn was an English earldom in return for his submission. To his credit, Llewellyn flatly refused, and we have Llewellyn and Daffid's written position and justification, and it rings with defiance. Here we go with some quotes. For we and all the Welsh were oppressed, trampled on and despoiled and reduced to servitude by royal judges and bailiffs against the form of peace and all justice, more than if we had been Saracens or Jews. And often we complained to the king and had no remedy, but always justices and bailiffs more ferocious and cruel were sent. And when they had been sated by their unjust exactions, others again were sent to excoriate the people, so much so the people preferred to die rather than to live. The letter ends with a ringing declaration that 
The people of Snowdonia do not wish to do homage to a stranger of whose language, manners and laws they are entirely ignorant. Edward was unimpressed. Writs were issued for more men and materiel, and they announced that the king now proposed to put an end finally to the matter that he had now begun of suppressing the malice of the Welsh. There was one more success left to the Welsh when they met a raiding party at Anglesey Bridge killing Roger Clifford's son and probably the bastard sons of Robert Burnell as well. But it was the last gasp. On the 26th of November, Roger Mortimer of Wigmore died. Llewellyn saw a chance of using his death to reignite Welsh resistance and he took his remaining men and struck out into central Wales. What he found on the 11th of December was a well-prepared army at a place called Kilmary. There are conflicting versions of what happened next, but here's the one I've chosen at random, handed down by Llewellyn's daughter and niece. Llewellyn approached the assembled army expecting to receive the homage of Edmund Mortimer and Griffith ap Gwynwynwyn. Instead, he found himself and his army attacked. As the evening drew on, he became separated with a small group of retainers. They were ambushed and chased into a wood where they were surrounded and Llewellyn was run through by a man-at-arms. His head was hacked off and sent to Edward. With characteristic generosity and sensitivity, Edward ordered it to be crowned with mocking ivy and nailed up at the Tower of London. How you view Llewellyn probably depends at least to a degree on where you come from. It certainly did at the time. For me, he quite simply began to believe his own publicity, and however unfair the grief he received at the hands of the English in the marches, he forgot the political realities. He'd had every chance of resolving the issues through Edward in the first round, though he'd have needed the patience of Job, no doubt. At base, there was a fundamental difference of opinion between Llewellyn and Edward. Llewellyn stated his view of Wales's position as... The rights of our principality are wholly separate from the rights of your kingdom, although we hold our principality under your power. So, a separate nation, just happening to share a monarch. Whereas Edward's view was that Llewellyn was one of the greatest magnates of our kingdom, i.e. just part of the same kingdom with a particularly large landholding. In 1282, you have to feel a bit sorry for Llewellyn. He'd been reminded of the realities of power and I suspect, with no real evidence, I have to say, that he was very reluctant to take part in the revolt but simply couldn't live with the thought of crushing a Welsh revolt against the hated English. I suspect he was fully aware of where it would lead and probably roundly cursed Stafford for his stupidity. However, this was not quite the end. Daffid now at last had his fondest wish, for which he had lied and cheated and portrayed. He was the Prince of Wales, though I imagine he'd have preferred different circumstances. He would have hoped or indeed have expected to have a bit of a breather. After all, it was now winter, and everyone knows that you don't fight in winter. But not so. Edward took the unprecedented decision to continue the fighting. In January, William de Valence took Aberystwyth at last, Edward advanced to dog with Helen in Snowdonia and Daffid fled to Beer. In May 1283, he was forced to flee from there as well to his last stronghold, Dolbadan. 
English search parties were swarming all over the Snowdonian hills, and at last the manhunt came to an end with Daffid's capture on the 21st of June, and he was handed over to Edward by a group of Welshmen. I was saying a couple of episodes ago that under Edward there is a perceptible change in the level of political violence, and Daffid was to suffer as a result. In September, he was brought from Rudland to Shrewsbury. There, Edward proposed, and his magnates agreed, that he was guilty of treason. Now, while the concept of treason had existed for a while, it had never been applied to a rebellion like this, or applied to someone of such high rank. But on the 2nd of October, the deed was done. And here's how an English chronicler describes it. Daffid was captured by the king's men together with his wife, two sons and seven daughters and was tried subsequently by the magnates of England. He was a fermenter of evil, a most vicious tormentor of the English and deceiver of his own race, an ungrateful traitor and a warmonger. The death of a traitor is indeed shameful. Daffid was dragged at horse's tail through the streets of Shrewsbury then hanged and finally decapitated. Afterwards, his body was hacked into four portions, his heart and intestines were burned, and his head was taken to London to be displayed at a stake on the tower next to his brother's head. The four quarters of this headless corpse were dispatched to Bristol, Northampton, York and Winchester. Good times. Basically, Edward now rubbed out the ancient Welsh kingdoms as far as he was able. Only Griffith ap Gwynwynwyn and Rhys ap Meredith survived, and we'll hear more about them anon. The most famous Welsh relic, the Cross of Neath, which contained a piece of the true cross, was removed and taken to London, though unlike the Stone of Scone, it then disappears. Edward spent much of 1283 and four touring Wales and overseeing the establishment of his new regime. A big part of this, of course, are the famed chain of castles which he had commissioned and built, and which it's true to say are genuinely magnificent. Edward brought an architect to help him, a Savoyard called Master James of St George, who seems to be working with Edward from 1278, and was responsible for 12 of the 17 castles that Edward built there. Each castle was accompanied by its town, which, as we said earlier, effectively excluded the Welsh. The castles ringed Snowdonia, and their size and completeness would have been overawing and must have destroyed any real thought of further rebellion. Most of them were also built on the coast, so the challenge for any rebels would not only be that they would probably lack the siege technology to break into them, they'd also probably be unable to even starve them into submission. Of course, the whole process sucked up enormous amounts of resources, men, material and money. Let's take Harlick Castle, for example. It was started in 1282 and completed seven years later in 1289. During its construction, it constantly employed a team of about a thousand people, all of which came to a total cost of 9,000 quid. The financial implications of all this castle building were pretty horrific probably somewhere around £80,000. One of those castles at Carnarvon was intended by Edward to be the most magnificent and to be the centre of English administration. At one end of the Menai Straits between the mainland and Anglesey, it was at the heart of Gwynedd, 
but it was also built close to the site of a Roman fort, reputedly built by the Emperor Maximus, father of Constantine. Carnarvon was therefore built with polygonal towers and coloured bands of masonry to resemble the walls of Constantinople. Edward and Eleanor arrived in Carnarvon in April 1284 on their tour. The myth goes that the Welsh asked Edward for a prince who spoke no English. Edward replied that he could do that, which turned out to be his newborn son, Edward, born at Carnarvon in April. The joke being that of course he didn't speak at all. Those Plantagenets could be real wags when they wanted to be. The story, unfortunately, falls into the tripe category and doesn't in fact appear until the 16th century. However, it is true to say that Edward would be made Prince of Wales. At the time of his birth, he was second in line after his older brother Alfonso, but within a few months he became the heir, when poor little ten-year-old Alfonso became the latest of Edward and Eleanor's children to die, a personal disaster which would later become a national one. Before they arrived at Carnarvon, Edward and Robert Burnell had produced the Statute of Wales, which annexed Wales and united it to the Crown of England. Administration was to be on English lines, with counties and sheriffs and coroners. There would be a Justicia of Snowdon based at Carnarvon. This was the start of a colonial government. Having said that, there was an attempt to accommodate the Welsh and recognise their separate nationhood. In the 1282 rebellion, the laws of Wales had become closely identified with the struggle, and while criminal law was to be English, civil law was to remain Welsh. Now as it happens, Welsh leaders had anyway been trying to move criminal law to the English system, so in fact that was less of a problem. Although the sheriffs and castellans were in the future English, and many of the old rulers of Wales suffered extinction, the lords below that top level probably did pretty well. It was usually Welsh lords who became the mainstays of the administrative system as bailiffs of the Welsh commotes or administrative regions. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Meanwhile, more myth-making went on as Edward sought to bring the conquest of Wales into some sort of ancient story. The body of Emperor Maximus was handily found, and we know how good Edward is at finding old bodies, and it was then reburied in the local church. The court moved to the town of Nefin on the Hlyn Peninsula, where in July a great Arthurian-type tournament was held, round table, jousts and all. And meanwhile it had been announced that there would be a new crusade in the Holy Land, and that Edward would lead it, inspired by his great victory in Wales. At the end of December 1284, it was apparently all over, and Edward and Eleanor returned to Westminster. Obviously, in the story of Britain, it's an immensely significant event, and of course gives me a bit of a personal problem, since my podcast should now really be called The History of England and Wales. Edward generally gets a lot of credit as a great conqueror, as the man who did more than anyone to build one British nation and I have to confess I struggle a bit with a lot of that. Initially, at least, Edward didn't have any such concept. 
It was simply a matter of putting down a rebellious magnate until it all got out of hand. And I struggle a bit with the military reputation bit. After all, his resources simply dwarfed Llewellyn's. But let's give him a bit of credit. He did marshal those resources with determination, speed and efficiency. He showed innovation in the bridge of boats and the winter campaign. And unlike any other English king to date, who had shared the same level of resource after all, he carried through his intentions to the finish. So, in a way, the years that follow, although probably not the most famous of Edward's reign, were his glory days. Edward had passed his probation period and looked unassailable. He'd both stood up to the magnates and at the same time brought them round onto his side. He'd restored the shattered finances of the crown, he was now a bona fide conqueror and had restored the shattered prestige of the crown. He was a tall, imposing figure, a personal example of the chivalric ideal. Yehoi. To add to this impressive list, or maybe because of this impressive list, Edward becomes a leading figure on the wider stage of Christendom. He was in constant consultation with various popes about leading the next crusade. Edward had, in fact, offered his brother Edmund, but being turned down, Edward was the only bloke with the prestige to lead this crusade. So from 1284, when he finally agreed to go, Edward was working with those various popes to get the finance together. The pope was to contribute £130,000 by taxing the church, because Edward was well aware that winning the Holy Land back for Christianity could cost somewhere north of a hill of beans. So here he is then, the leader-elect of the military arm of Christendom, if you like. Meanwhile, one of the problems about mounting a unified Christian attack on the infidel was the appearance of a substantial lack of unity within Christendom itself. So unfortunately, we need a brief foray into events on the continent. The problem with Christian unity was Sicily. If you happen to have a good memory, you might remember that we talked about the Pope's plan to put a puppet on the throne of Sicily rather than the Holy Roman Emperor. And that although Henry had turned out to be something of a damp squib, the French king's brother Charles of Anjou had turned out to be a real firecracker and had managed to invade and conquer the island. Charles, incidentally, had proved to be something of a magpie in the crown collecting department. So, soon afterwards, in 1271, it acquired the Kingdom of Albania. Don't need to know this, by the way. And then in 1277, he bought the title of the King of Jerusalem. So, he had very big ideas, this lad, and with his 1280 scheme, he topped it off by planning the capture of Constantinople. Unfortunately, his eyes were much bigger than his stomach. And it was Sicily itself, milked dry to pay for all of this, that gave Charles indigestion. So, in 1282, the Sicilians rose in a revolt called the Sicilian Vespers, where the streets were alive with men crying death to the French and putting this simple plan into action. But the result of this was not just a struggle between the Sicilians and Charles of Anjou, but a dynastic struggle that split Europe right down the middle. In the blue corner were Sicily and the descendants of the Hohenstaufens, the line of Frederick of Germany, erstwhile rulers of Sicily and the Holy Roman Emperors. The Sicilians decided they'd like that lot back, please. The remaining descendant was Constance, who happened to be the wife of Peter, the King of Aragon, 
Now, for those of you who do not know, Aragorn is not a bloke who defeated Sauron in the struggle for the Middle-earth, but in fact one of the Christian kingdoms in northern Spain. Constance asked her prince to fight for the rights of her house, and Peter obliged. So in the red corner were the Pope, his cat's paw, Charles of Anjou, and Charles's nephew, who happened to be Philip III, King of France. Round one went firmly to the Sicilians and the Holy Roman Emperor and Peter of Aragon. And by the end of 1282, Peter had been crowned as the new King of Sicily. This, of course, got the Pope and King Philip of France proper blazing. And by 1285, Philip had an army perched at the edge of Aragon, waiting to teach Peter a few home truths. All of which put Edward in a bit of a spot. Philip, after all, was his overlord in respect of Gascony and inconveniently asked him to fight along. Edward had no desire whatsoever to start beating people up in the name of France and slithered and wriggled and basically managed to weasel out of it until, much to his relief, Philip died horribly during the invasion of Aragon. Peter of Aragon and Sicily was so relieved that, ironically, he died too in the same year. But meanwhile, the Aragonese had managed to get their hands on Charles of Salerno, the son and heir of Charles of Anjou. All of this made it absolutely impossible to lead any kind of united crusade. But it gave Edward an absolutely cast-iron, copper-bottomed, slap-my-thigh-and-call-me-a-beetroot opportunity to behave as the senior statesman of Europe and try and bring these parties together and get Charles of Salerno released. First step was an embassy to meet France to meet the new French king. The new guy, Philip IV, was 17 at the time and called Philip the Fair because he was supposed to be something of a looker. He was also painfully shy and to prove remarkably inflexible. So he attracted a certain amount of negative comments later in his reign. One commentator remarked, The most handsome man in the world, he can do nothing but stare. And another He is neither man nor beast, he is statue. But Edward set off for France with a massive entourage, with queen and family earls and magnates, Burnell and a cloud of advisers. There were over 1,000 horses and eight ships were needed for kitchen equipment alone, so it's possible that when Philip and Edward met at Amiens that Philip was impressed, or even overawed. Certainly the relationship seems to have been good. Edward did homage in a nice vague way, using the words according to the terms of the peace made between our ancestors, which left things nice and open. But while Edward played good cop, Burnell told the French bluntly that they still owed them land under the Treaty of Paris from 1259. Edward managed to arrange a truce at least between the French and the Aragonese, and managed to finish off the Treaty of Paris, England now got the Saintonge in the north of Gascony, in return for giving up its claims to an area called Quercy in the east of Gascony. Hopefully Edward was enjoying this. He'd find out a few years later that Philip had a mission to consolidate the power of the French monarchy, and this would no longer include being nice to the Duke of Gascony. But for the moment, he's 17... Edward is 46 and a bit of a god. It was to take Edward three more years to finish the diplomatic job, but by 1288, France and Aragon were at peace, and Charles of Salerno had been released. 
You proved your sincerity, gushed Charles, unloosed my bonds and broke the walls of my prison. Another happy customer for Edward, arbiter of Europe. Between 1285 and 1289, then, Edward spent his life on the continent in Gascony, leaving the affairs of England to a regency government. After all, the French weather was considerably better than the English, possibly making up for the inferiority of their cheese. It's a period of Edward's life as relaxing as any he would spend. He's touring around southern France, being kingly and statesmanlike, watching the money for his crusade build up. But there are a few things worth a mensch. First of all, there's something of a personal call for Edward. There he was one day standing around in the solar with a number of knights and advisers. This does not, incidentally, mean that Edward and his household had discovered spaceflight. No, indeed. The solar was a room generally reserved for private living quarters at the top of the building, often above the great hall, where all the performance stuff went on. There they were, eight feet up, when the whole floor collapsed. Some were crushed, some were killed. Edward appeared with nothing more than a broken collarbone. All of which miraculous escape contributed to the feeling of a man with a charmed life, a man who had God's personal attention and protection. Second is the Bastide. This is not a term of abuse. No, the Bastide is a special town peculiar to southwestern France that Edward gets enthusiastically involved in. The Bastide reflected the turbulence of the time and the need for defence, and at the same time the need to establish new towns to build the economy, and income for the Lord. The Bastide had a strong grid layout, all coming together in a central square accessed by covered arcades. The idea was a town that was defensible without going to all that town wall expense. So Edward personally established a number at this time, because Gascony was in fact something of a backwater. With an economy much underdeveloped, Compared to England, fewer towns, and a reliance on the wine trade for its bread, if you see what I mean. In particular, Edward and Eleanor founded a place I bet that none of you have ever stayed at called Burgess Reginae. I'm reasonably confident that you've not stayed there because it no longer exists. As it happens, Edward was spectacularly unsuccessful at establishing towns that worked, both in England and in Gascony. In Gascony, none of them at all survive as a modern settlement. Because the truth is that by this time, there were more than enough towns for the medieval economy and no room for the successful survival of more. Outside of Wales, the only one I think that survives of the Bastide type is Winchelsea, which was replanted because the sea was eating it away, so I'm not sure that counts anyway. But, if you are ever headed for Gascony, head also for Montpazier, a perfectly preserved example of the Bastide, built by a different man. The third and final thing I'd like to mention about these years was dealt with not by Edward, but by the Regency. Because in 1287, Wales again erupted in revolt. This time the man responsible is Rhys Ap Meredith. Rhys was the surviving member of the Royal House of the Southern Welsh Kingdom of De Hubarth ruling over the remaining Welsh bit in the Cantref Moor. He'd been very cool indeed about the idea of Llewellyn being the Prince of all Wales and defected very early to Edward in the War of 1277. Now Rhys had been rewarded for this with extra lands, but it didn't include the castle he'd really wanted. 
Dinefor, the traditional capital of the Hubath. And in fact, just to rub salt in the wounds, Edward then demanded that Rhys formally renounce his claims. So in 1287, Rhys had finally had enough and led a revolt against the English, recapturing more of the traditional lands of de Hubath. In response to what turned out to be something of a nut in the world of Welsh revolts, the Regency constructed a massive sledgehammer with an army of 24,000, costing a bomb. Against this, Rhys had no defence. When his last stronghold was reduced, he went into hiding, but was eventually found. He was executed for treason at York in 1291, continuing our new brutal trend for the fruits of rebellion. His son was imprisoned at Bristol and was still alive in 1340, but essentially that's the end of the line of de Hubarth. The revolt and Regency response was a sign that all was not yet finished as far as Wales were concerned, and there will be more bum-biting to come. So by June 1289, Edward was back in England. If he'd known what the next 18 years were going to be like, maybe he'd have stayed in Gascony, because there's going to be plenty of work to do. And this isn't going to be the joyride that the last 17 years have been. And we'll start all of that in two weeks' time, because next week I've got a week off. And meanwhile, thanks so much to everyone who's commented on iTunes, or sent me an email, or managed to find the elusive History of England Facebook site. And as always, good luck and have a great week.